Christina Bryan Fitzgibbons, a genetic and family investigator. And I'm Jody Klugman Rabb, a licensed marriage and family therapist and licensed professional clinical counselor. Welcome to Sex, Lies, and the Truth. Today, we talk with Cassandra Adams, a prominent name in the donor conception world as an activist for the rights of donor-conceived persons. This was not a passion for Cassandra until she discovered her own conception story, bringing with it a new cultural identity and religious affiliation. Learn how Cassandra navigated the adjustment and identity formation and feel settled in the continuing process of discovery and advocacy. Um, my name is Cassandra Adams. I am 38 years old. I live in New Jersey, uh, the USA, and I found out from a commercial DNA test that I was conceived from donor sperm. I found out in September of 2017, I had uh, taken a 23andMe test and it was such a big thing for me. This was something I'd really been interested in for a long time. They used to be really expensive and the prices came down and I actually got the test for free uh, from doing a, a research study that 23andMe was running. I got this test for free and it, I was just thrilled to um, look at my genetic breakdown, learn a little bit more about family history, and which was something I'd always been interested in, genealogy, family trees, and also possibly connect with family, find out more about my health history, things that, that maybe aren't so visible to the naked eye. And when I got my results, when I got that, that email that, that we all know about, the first thing I saw when I opened up my results was uh, 50% Ashkenazi Jewish. And as, as so many with a DNA surprise can tell you, sometimes the first clue is, is pretty much a smack in the face with this was unexpected. And that's what it was for me. So, you know, for some background, my mother is Italian American. My grandparents came over from Italy. So they were both from the same town in Italy. I knew that side was pretty set. And my dad was a very, very much a mix, a Northern European mix, very British and Dutch and colonial America. And so this 50% Jewish was completely unexpected. And for a little bit, I tried to figure out how it fit into the narrative of, of what I knew, because your first instinct isn't to think that anything major is a myth. You know, I'm considering whether my Italian grandparents possibly were were Jewish ethnically, you know, whether there was some forced conversions there in Italy or whether my my dad's you know, grandmother who had a German name was possibly Jewish. And and so I finally realized that there was something really wrong. The mental gymnastics Cassandra is talking about is a common reaction for MPE trying to make sense of the discovery. When paternity was never something you questioned, there's no context to understand these results. It's easy to try and make it fit with the narrative you do know, but that never works. I was not going to make sense of this because the results were pretty much 50% Italian and 50% Jewish. And a friend of mine really said to me, you know, Cassandra, your, your last name is Adams you know, your dad is British, has a lot of British ancestry in there, and you're 0% British. And that's really when it, it hit me where I was like, oh, I can't make sense of this anymore. And, and that's when I realized I had to, to go talk to my mom. 
And, and so that's what I did the next morning. I, I also had a half sibling match, but of course, like many people, you maybe think that, you know, your, your dad had a child out there that they didn't know about or something, but this, this half sibling match also was 50% Jewish. So the next morning I had my mom come over a little bit early. She was coming over to watch my daughter and I confronted her and she knew what was coming. She had actually watched me spit in the tube and, uh, and she knew I got my results. And I asked her, I said, mommy, I said, what's, what's going on? At that point, I, I said, he, he's not my father, is he? And she was sitting on the couch and she started crying and she said, no, he's not. And I was just like, what happened? Who is it? What's going on? You know, I, I could not imagine. My mom is a very goody two shoes, Italian American Catholic girl, you know, nothing amiss that I would ever uh, imagine. And her response was, daddy couldn't have children. And so we used a sperm donor. And that was the moment where everything kind of came crashing down because that's when it was confirmed. You know, I had spent several hours overnight, unable to sleep, nervous, feeling like, like I was on unsteady ground. But the moment it was officially confirmed by, by my mother was the moment that everything crumbled. Like you could feel your body crumbling, your a sense of identity, just, just everything. Um, and my first thoughts were, who is he? One of the first things I thought of was, was my health history. I, I was furious. I said, mommy, what if, what if all this man's family had early breast cancer and I don't know. And, you know, I was, I was about to turn 35. So that was something that was on my radar, you know, getting older, looking after my own health um, and, and just not knowing at all what I was carrying inside of my body. And then looking over at my daughter who was a year and a half old at the time and wondering what on earth I passed down to her. And I felt extremely petrified, really, even looking at my daughter, wondering what, what I passed down to her. At first, Cassandra's mother was good about talking to her about it, answering all of her questions. Cassandra learned that the donor was a colleague of the gynecologist and had in fact driven directly from Long Island with his donation. One of the first kind of thoughts I had of myself, one of the first mental images I had of myself was like in a cup, you know, in a car, just buckled in a car, just driving toward the, the doctor's office, just driving on the highway. And it was such a, an out-of-body experience and such a, such a dehumanizing way to think of, to feel about myself. But with that information, I was able to very quickly find the identity of my biological father because I matched with this half-sibling that I had mentioned. And from Googling her last name, I saw that her, you know, who was likely her father uh, was a doctor from Long Island. And so I put, you know, put two and two together and realized that this was probably the raised child of my biological father. And I, and within a day or two, I I messaged her and, and that turned out to be correct. So I was very quickly able to connect with my biological father. My half sibling connected me with her, one of her other siblings who we got together at one another and realized that we were 
both normal people who looked very much alike. Cassandra forged a nice connection with her bio dad that four years later is still going strong, but still not fully adjusted to yet either. For some people, the discovery doesn't change their ethnicity all that much, but for Cassandra, it added not only a new culture, but a new religion as well, a new tribe in which she is finding community and belonging. But as a donor-conceived person, that's not the only new community she was suddenly thrust into. And learning more about the practice of donor conception and what that looked like when I was conceived and born in 1982 and what that looks like now and how it's developed from when it was first created and, and, and the progress that we're hoping to bring about, about in the future. One of the things that's really unique about donor conception is the fact that a person, especially a sperm donor, usually donates multiple times over months or possibly years. And so there are usually multiple, multiple half siblings. And they're all from different raised families. And now there are more likely to be records of, of how many siblings there are per donor, although it's not mandated. But when I was conceived, there, there were no records kept, if there were any even made at the time. In speaking to my mom, I found that she was given no paperwork when I was conceived. There was no information given to her about the donor. There was no information given to her that this procedure had even occurred, possibly nothing even written in her chart that this procedure had occurred. So it was very much a secret. When I found my biological father, I asked him, you know, was there any health history taken from the doctors who were donating? And he laughed and said, no. He said, they didn't ask us anything, uh, nothing at all. So my, my mom was told that, you know, these were healthy doctors. That was the phrase they really kept hammering home to her was that they were healthy doctors, healthy doctors. And yet there was no, no medical information taken or given of any sort. So that's really the, the level of secrecy that was present at that time. And so for as many families as this man was donating to, you know, none of them were given paperwork or any kind of identifying number where we could be traced. So really for so many of us, the only way to find our half siblings is through DNA testing. And for most of us conceived in that era, we were not told that we were donor conceived. So it's really based on the chance that someone DNA tests, which is more and more likely as time goes on, but still not comfortable enough for us when we want to know who we're related to and if, if they're okay. Cassandra jokes there is a sibling season for those out there in the donor-conceived community. It's the time of year when the DNA tests go on sale, bringing more siblings and dispelling more secrets. The secrets in the MPE community are currency we all trade. How much value do we have in the family if we go public, or are we compelled to keep the toxic secrecy to maintain any position in the family? Cassandra grilled her mom for their experience with the donor agency, and soon realized her parents, too, had been inducted into the cult of secrecy. My parents were told, were not specifically told not to tell, 
but they were told that after my mother was inseminated to go home, have sex, and that's your child. There was a lot of plausible deniability at the time in the way it was practiced, where doctors would tell, you know, tell patients to have sex either before or after insemination, or uh, some doctors would mix sperm, would mix the sperm of the, the donor with the sperm of the intended father. And, you know, 99% of the time, the donor sperm won out because the intended father was either infertile or, you know, had had some sort of problem. And the doctors knew this, but the way they portrayed it to the parents was often as a solution or even earlier in time around the, you know, World War II post-war era doctors were truly kind of confusing their patients by not even specifically saying sometimes that it was a donor that they were mixing in. It would be, we're fortifying, we're adding something to fortify your husband's sperm or something of that nature, where sometimes a lot of people who are now in their 50s, 60s, 70s, we're finding out they are donor conceived. If they're able to get any information from their parents, they're finding out that possibly one or both parents really didn't know, um, was really not aware that donor sperm was being used. And this really kind of illustrates the progression of how, how things have gone, where you know, one of the first recorded instances of donor conception in the late 1880s in Philadelphia was from a doctor who actually chloroformed the woman and inseminated her, you know, while she was knocked out, inseminated her with the sperm of, you know, quote unquote, his most handsome medical student. And this woman was not told that she was just told that there was some kind of procedure performed. She was not told that she was inseminated by with, with another man's sperm and she got pregnant. And this, you know, this doctor, Dr. Pancoast, I believe was his name was, you know, credited as this wonderful fertility doctor. And the secret didn't come out until years later. I think, I think at some point the woman's husband was told and she may have found out after the doctor died, I believe it came out, but that is really the, the basis for how donor conception started. It started in complete secrecy. It started with this kind of eugenicist aspect of, of using intelligent, good-looking men to, you know, fulfill the desires of, of couples for children and to fill a need that these men couldn't fill themselves. If you think donor conception is the only one to have icky origins, there's a dark history to the adoption world as well. It started as this really secretive practice. And I kind of, when I'm speaking with adoptees, I almost kind of equate it to something like Georgia Tan, uh, who was really kind of the architect of the way modern American adoption works as far as keeping birth certificates, you know, hidden and she actually trafficked and stole children from hospitals. And this is really the way that some of these things started out. So over the last hundred years, while things have gotten better, there's, it's always rooted in that secrecy. It's always rooted in, in some of the ways that it, it began. You know, Georgia Tan with the, these 
the birth certificates that were um, kept hidden, the children that were stolen from hospitals to give to wealthier parents. It started out in, in secrecy and shame. And really that's, that's the similar route to where donor conception started. And so over the last hundred years, there, it's been a slow progression of trying to get break out of some of that secrecy because, because we keep seeing the, the results of these, of these practices and they're, they're not good. Part of the secrecy in the era when I was conceived and prior to was this idea that we were bastards. And that was also something that a lot of parents were told, uh, probably specifically in the 60s, was that we would be legal bastards and that the women would be um, guilty of adultery legally. Some parents were scared into secrecy that way. Some parents were scared into secrecy by the idea that the donor could come and claim the child somehow. Thankfully, we've been moving away from that insanity, but the manipulation shifted around the 1980s to attachment theory and how being forthcoming with the conception information may hamper the parents' ability to bond with the children. Professionally speaking, when children are wanted, very little hampers the bonding and therefore attachment style of the babies. Although we can assume donor-conceived parents had no reason to believe their secret would get out, I can say with strong conviction that withholding information while piling on the judgment and manipulation causes significant bonding problems, regardless of the age of the child. If they really knew that they weren't somehow biologically a part of your family, that there would be difficulty there, which really is the opposite of, of the truth of, of what occurs. Some of those questions still linger today as far as what is the donor legally to the child. And, you know, when if someone is going through large sperm egg embryo banks, there's paperwork there that effectively severs parental rights where the donor does not have a legal right as your parent anymore uh, once the child is born. Now, a lot of times what donor-conceived adults are advocating for now is similar to uh, what the trend in adoption has been, which is open adoption. So a lot of us are advocating for known donations and open donations where the donor and the recipient family are known to one another and the child can grow up knowing their biological parent, knowing half-siblings where it's an open relationship and there's never any secrecy about who who people are or what the relationships are. And there's always the possibility for the child to ask questions or spend time with the person. There's updated medical history, all the things that, that we need. And again, that it requires a lot of planning. If you're not going to a bank, it requires a lot of planning with the person who's providing the sperm or egg to draw up legal contracts prior to so that there is no, you know, you're absolving the, the biological parent of either legal status as a parent or so they don't have to contribute financially to the raising of the, of the child. And these are all things that are different in every situation, every arrangement. 
the reason we advocate for such things is because after decades of kind of experimenting almost with with us to see what it would be like if you raise a child without one of their genetic parents and don't tell them we're finding that there's a lot of a lot of trauma with that there's a lot of trauma with the late discovery as i'm sure anybody listening will know with all the stories of npes it's always always traumatic to find out later in life that one of your raising parents is not your biological parent as you were led to believe um but we're kind of seeing this battle between nature and nurture and it's become almost an experiment to see how how we turned out what did we turn out like did we turn out like our biological families did we turn out like our raising families and what have been the consequences of decades of keeping these secrets and what have been the consequences of decades of not allowing us to know anything about our other other half so it's been a really interesting world to explore and one of the there are several aspects of of this world that have really um intrigued me that I kind of focus in on when I work in in advocacy and one of them is you know the effects of secrecy on on family relationships on the relationship with your raising family and parents especially another one is the effect of a sudden change in racial or ethnic identity um and another is really the the subtle differences between the different types of situations that can occur as a result of DNA test so whether you're finding out that you are an adoptee you know a late discovery adoptee or a late discovery donor conceived person or an npe from an affair um you know what are the similarities between all of those and what are the differences Technically, the term NPE refers to conceptions resulting from an affair or paternity fraud, or even mothers who honestly were wrong about who the father of their child was. Credit for that terrible name is given to two genealogists, Brian Sykes and Catherine Irwin, and their year 2000 paper, Surnames and the Y Chromosome. Jody has taken to combining donor conception and adoption into the NPE lingo because even though they come from different paths, they all have the same terminus. And we're now beginning to call that terminus MPE, misattributed parentage, which finally allows maternity to be included. You know, one thing that I I always want to emphasize when we're talking about this, especially on a podcast called Sex, Lies, and the Truth, right? Because we're all dealing with lies to some extent, and we're all dealing with the truth. But sex is where donor conception gets a little, a little different there. So I was not conceived from sex, you know, at all. My, my parents, my biological parents have never met one another. There was never any skin-to-skin contact, no feelings, no emotions there. And even, even today with the, with the rise of IVF, even for people using their own sperm and eggs, children are often not conceived in, in a sexual union. 
And so that's been something really interesting for me to grapple with. And I feel like that's such an important part of a story that children need to be told from the beginning, because there are so many different kinds of families and so many different ways to come into the world. But the main thing that I think that a lot of people have trouble grasping is they don't think that we're fully human. And it's not that they rationally don't think that. Nobody's sitting there thinking that someone conceived, um, you know, <laughs> with sperm in a cup is just not human. <laughs> Nobody's really like sitting there and thinking that. But people will say that you have fewer rights because of how you were conceived. They'll say you don't have a right to know who that person is, whereas someone conceived in a one night stand or even even within a marriage where the father you know left or the mother left where someone left the situation and became unknown to the child there would be a lot of empathy in society for that missing parent you know that's awful that you that you lost your parent or if a parent passes away you know that's awful that somehow you were disconnected from that person from knowing that person and yet Somehow, when there's a cup involved and a turkey baster involved, that removes our right to not just to know the person, but to have feelings about that person and to have opinions about that. Someone actually, you know, just a couple days ago, just actually set it out. And you'll have people alluding to that a lot, but it's, 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 it often actually is stated like, but he just jizzed in a cup. He didn't have sex with your mom. Literally. I mean, I, I moderate a group of, of 14,000 adults and you would be surprised how many times I have to, we have to step in and be like, can you please stop using the word jizz? Like, please just stop. It's really disrespectful. <laughs> like, <laughs> but we actually have people, you know, saying those things to us. And these are, predominantly people who are using donor conception and they're talking to us in effect they're talking to their children years years from now basically saying that because you were not conceived in sex you do not have a right to know and you don't have a right to have feelings about whether you want to know we asked cassandra what she feels is important for the family of mpes to know who are in the blush of their discovery Unsurprisingly, identity makes the top of the list next to the right to know basic identifiers like ancestry and medical information, and that platitudes are not for the MPE's benefits, but for the benefit of the person speaking them. And the funny thing is that when you get those strange DNA test results, you absolutely have no idea before you have all the information, when you just get those weird results on the screen, whether it's different family and your relative matches or whether it's a totally different ethnic background, when you first realize that things are not as they seem and, and, and one or both of your parents are not who you thought, you don't know what the story is behind that. And yet your identity is still crumbling. You could very easily be from a donor. You could very easily be from an affair, but we all have those same feelings and we all have those same rights to find answers. The thing about donor conception that's so fascinating in a sense is that because it's not the result of a mistake, you know, which is another kind of trope 
that we get, which is that you were so wanted, you were so loved, which is true to, to an extent. We were, you know, our parents went through time and money, although it was not, that's another thing is that it actually was not that expensive in, in days of your, <laughs> my mother paid a hundred dollars per insemination, which in 1982 was, you know, more than a hundred dollars is now, but it, it still was not um, anything to break the bank. It's not like now where you spend thousands per, per vial of sperm and the donors were paid 35. My, my biological father was paid $35 per donation. More Unspoken is the effect the secret has on the donor-conceived parents, a unique situation where both parents generally know the secret. So that's one of the, the painful aspects of donor conception that I think is hard for the general public to understand, but it's also hard for other people dealing with misattributed parentage to really understand. Um, and because our our conception stories were usually kept by both of our parents, there's almost like this conspiratorial aspect to it as well. A lot of times you'll see in, in groups, especially if there was a mother having an affair, you know, the father does not know that the child is not biologically his or maybe has suspicions that they're just kind of easily pushed away. Um, in donor conception, it's, it's much more likely that both parents are aware that the child is not biologically, biologically related to one of them and that they're both keeping this secret. And what it ends up being, and as it became in my family of origin, is this this trauma bond between the parents. I mean, one of the things my mother said to me within the first 15 minutes when she was answering my barrage of questions was that basically this was the reason she stayed in a marriage that was not healthy was because they shared the secrets together. And my dad was willing to raise us as his own. And it was very painful for me to hear that because I've known my whole life how unhappy my mother was in that relationship, in that marriage, um, how emotionally abusive my my raising dad could be. And while my I have no doubt that my dad loved me completely, and as I love him completely, he's my my dad regardless of of anything, but this surely added on to his poor mental health, which he already had, and to his distance and to his substance abuse. And it did not help our family to have two people who were so emotionally pained and traumatized keeping the secret between themselves for 35 years and pretending like it never happened. That's the other thing when, when I do um, advocacy work, when I moderate groups, when I deal with parents who are using donors now, one of the things we emphasize, and although it's a terrible thing to tell people, you know, just flat out go to therapy, you know, it's not a, not a polite thing to, to say to people we know nowadays, but the fact of the matter is, is that any parent who's using donor gametes, especially for uh, infertility, but even in the case of same-sex relationships where one parent is going to be genetically connected and one isn't, for the non-genetic parent to grieve 
to go through infertility counseling to get to a point where they feel able to bond with a child who is not genetically theirs. Because as we all know, as human beings, we can love and bond with people who are not genetically our, our, our kin. It's absolutely possible. And we, we love our, our parents who raise us as well for everything that we share and everything that we, that they've done for us. But these are just different, different kinds of relationships. And one doesn't replace the need for for the other. I think as anybody who has met biological family can kind of agree that there's some kind of unspoken bond there. There's some kind of deep understanding. I feel like I understand myself so much more now that I not only know that I look just like my biological father, now that I know that I get, you know, my personality from, and that's that's the thing too. When you are expecting a child, and this goes for anyone who's pregnant, you cannot control what that baby looks like, what that whose personality that child takes after. You know, cannot control those inborn aspects. There is no predetermined adjustment period, but certainly the reaction of one's known or social family can have an enormous impact on the adjustment. Ability to explore new ethnic or religious identities and curiosity about connections and sense of self is a gift to give the family member going through this discovery. Think on how you would feel when somebody expresses curiosity about you and an issue you're dealing with. There's no need to actually solve the problem, and there's no need for anybody else to take it personally on the other end. Just open curiosity about what it means and how you handle it. You feel seen. It's taken me a long time to feel comfortable, but once you start connecting with this, with a culture, it, it finds its place. You have this, this written into your body. I have this history of trauma and, and perseverance written into me. Half of everyone who led to me being here, led to me sitting here, led to me breathing felt like this tradition was so valuable that they were willing to suffer and die to maintain it. And I don't want that to end with me. And I don't want it to end with the $35 that my father was paid for his firm. I cannot undo the fact that I look Jewish. I cannot undo the fact that people tell me I have mannerisms and that I, you can't sell that. You can't give that away for any amount of money. Cassandra has funneled her passion and pain with this experience into helping shape laws and mental health support for donor-conceived persons. Contact Cassandra at CassandraJAdams at Yahoo.com for information on support for the donor-conceived community or to see how you may be involved in the growing advocacy to know our origins. Sex, Lies, and the Truth is written and produced by Jody Klugman-Rab and Christina Bryan Fitzgibbons. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can contact us through our website at www.sexliesandthetruth.com. If you are a fan of Sex, Lies, and the Truth and want to support us, you can do that through Patreon. Patreon is a really cool platform where fans of shows like ours can pledge a small amount each month, 
even just a few dollars, to support the show. You can find us there at www.patreon.com forward slash sex lies and the truth.